go ahead and turn to Acts 28 as we finish up what's been a couple years study through the book of Acts. Yeah, a couple years. It's all online if you missed any of it. So, so just to um, share a little application before we get into the text today. So um, I've been with some of you guys for a long time since my wife and I, we moved up as an engineer at the time transferred up here with a, a job opportunity that was more in line with what um, I went to school with. I went to school for construction engineering management at OSU, so managing construction, and took a job up here with ODOT. And I must say, when I took that job, my initial purpose was to come up here and get experience for a couple of years and then get a better job somewhere else where it was sunnier and warmer up here. We, we had gotten plugged in this church about six or so months after moving up here. And, and I mean, it was great. I mean, the Lord made it clear right away this is where he wanted us and he was doing good things. But I, I, I was very set on always looking for that next opportunity. Like um, like weekly, I'd look at the, the state of Oregon jobs pages and I'd be like looking for these job app or opportunities elsewhere. And I'd be putting applications in for ones that I thought like you know, like were good opportunities. And, um, you know, I interviewed for a couple of those that I really wanted and, and honestly thought that I had in the bag. I had a good reputation within ODOT and was kind of moving up quickly. And so like, I thought, oh, this is, yeah, I'll get this for sure. And, you know, with no explanation, I, I didn't get those jobs. And come to find out now, I know why the Lord had other plans. But back then that was like my, my purpose. That was my focus. Like I really was trying to, I, I had, my purpose was, you know, in my career, in, in kind of, you know, success in, 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 in worldly things, if you will. You know, I would say as a Christian that, you know, that's not what our purpose is supposed to be. It's supposed to be living for Jesus and stuff. But that was a lesson the Lord had let, not taught me yet. But I remember at some point, I don't remember the exact point, but at some point over my time here at this church, the Lord did this profound work in me where he helped me understand what it truly meant, where I could truly find my purpose in life. Because see, we can spend a whole lot of our lives chasing after purpose, okay? Whenever you're trying to find your purpose in anything other than the Lord, that's what you're chasing after it. You chase it in your careers. You chase it in relationships. You chase it in pleasure. You just chase, 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 and you never find it. You never. I don't care how successful you are, or you get that thing that you want so bad, it never amounts to what you think it is, and you just keep chasing, and all it leaves you is exhausted and tired and discontent and unfulfilled, and the Lord's just trying to simplify your life and telling you, I made you, and I made you to know me, and as the women study this weekend, walk with me, and that is where you're gonna find your purpose, and I remember at some point the Lord I don't want to get emotional this early, but I remember him teaching me and just showing me this great work that he was doing in me, in my family, in this church, in, in, in this awesome things he was doing through us and just the different things he called us to. And I remember it just clicking. This is my purpose. This is what there's no better place to be. I don't have to look for it anymore. I've found it. And I don't want to be anywhere other than where the Lord wants me to be. And my focus changed. My life simplified. I stopped looking for my purpose in other things. I'm not saying I've been perfect in that. You can still get 
you know, caught up, you can still get caught up in things in this life and the Lord has to reel, reel you back in and correct you. But like, I found my purpose for the first time. I realized what it was found in and that became the focus of my life. I just wanna be where the Lord wants me to be. I just wanna be doing what he wants me to do because that's where he's gonna help me grow in my relationship with him. That's where he's gonna conform me to the image of his son. That's where he, I'm gonna get to see him do really cool things. And I, I point that out because I, if you've been tracking with us through the whole entire book of Acts, which a lot of it is spent following the life of Paul, I think you would agree that Paul is somebody that lived with a purpose to follow Jesus. As we looked at last week, he was a servant, first and foremost, of the Lord. That was his identity. Man, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That's, that's who I am. And you see him practically live that out in the things he does and the things he says. And you're gonna continue to see a great example of that as we finish up this chapter. So just as a reminder in Acts 28, where we ended up last week, we went through the first 10 verses and we see Paul and the rest of those on this ship that he was on that was heading to Rome get shipwrecked on this island of Malta and they're taken care of by the native people and Paul just continues to faithfully serve the Lord in any way that the Lord allows him to and he's just picking up sticks for a fire and God does something miraculous, right? He gets bit by a poisonous snake. He shakes it off. It doesn't phase him. All of a sudden, it gives him a testimony before the people. It opens up doors where he gets to go see their, uh, they bring, start bringing their sick to him and he prays for them and God uh, heals them miraculously and next thing you know, him and his, the other Christians that are with him, they get, they get to witness to the whole entire island, basically, about Jesus through just that simple act of serving the Lord. And so that's where we're gonna pick it up in verse 11. Let me pray one more time, and we will start going through the rest of this chapter. Lord God, again, just settle our hearts. Lord, these aren't words that I'm speaking, or I pray that they're not. Lord, this is the word of God, and there's power in it. And we see that your Holy Spirit works through the word of God. We know this in our own lives as you speak to us through it so often. So Lord, we wanna be ready to receive what it is you wanna say. So captivate our attention right now and may we come here with humble hearts that are ready to hear whatever it is you have to say, whether it's encouragement or correction or direction. We come here just ready to listen to our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says in verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, or there was a ship that was already wintering in Malta, a ship of Alexandria, which is located in Egypt. So it's a ship that had been coming from Egypt uh, with twin gods as a figurehead, a figurehead being kind of like a wood carving. You've probably seen that in some old ships. And of twin gods, these were probably the Greek gods of Castor and Pollux, which were protectors of sailors. So they get on this ship, and it says in verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, which was um, uh, on the island of Sicily off the coast of Italy, the southern coast of Italy. So they're going north now from Malta. They stop at Syracuse. It says, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at uh, Regium, which is on the southern tip of Italy. So they're going north towards Rome. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to uh, Pudioli, which is up by Naples. So they're continuing to go north along the Italian coast. And it says in verse 14, there we found brothers or other Christians and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome and the brothers or the Christians there, when they heard about us, 
came as far as the forum of uh, Appius and three taverns to meet us. Those were basically Roman station posts along this really famous roadway called the Appian Way that Rome had built. And so they were quite some distance from uh, the actual city of Rome, but uh, these visitors came to meet them. And it says, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So they spend three months in Malta, wintering, waiting for good weather to leave, uh, head to Rome, and then the ship's crew, they get on the ship that had originally come from Egypt to head there. And as they make their way north, they're, they're going along the western Italian coast. They stop along the capital of Sicily in Syracuse, and then they hit a couple other um, cities along the way. And they find Christians there, which means that the gospel had gotten to this area of the world before Paul had gotten here. Actually, as we're gonna see when we go in the book of Romans, it was written a couple years before this time. So he had been writing to the Christians there. He knew of them, all right? And so they reached their destination of Rome. And when the believers in Rome heard Paul and his camp companions arrive, Rome being inland a bit, they come to greet him. And these are probably the Christians that received or were aware of these letters Paul had written to the Romans. And so they had some anticipation that, hey, here's this guy that wrote us and, and we were anxious to see him. We're anxious to hear what he has to say to finally meet him, right? So they, they come some 40 miles in some cases at one of those Roman stations to come and greet him before he ever gets to Rome. And this is an encouragement to Paul. As verse 15 says that he thanked God for them and their visit gave him courage, which if he was given courage by them visiting, it must have meant that he had become discouraged. But through his fellowship with his brothers and sisters in Christ, he became thankful and encouraged. And this is an important principle that we need to remember is that it, what we see in Paul's life is that he lived for fellowship with other believers, okay? He lived for fellowship with other believers. And I want you to note that because that's one of the ways he practically lived for Jesus. He lived for fellowship with other believers. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 tells us, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together or fellowship as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So this passage talks about three things. It, it, it exhorts us not to lose hope. It exhorts us to motivate each other to keep serving the Lord. And it, it motivates us to encourage one another. And in the context of this passage, all three of those things revolve around or are tied to meeting together or fellowship or relationship with other believers. So how many of you guys ever lose hope sometimes? Yeah, yep. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying, all right? We, we all lose hope. How many of you guys get discouraged sometimes? How many guys lack motivation? Maybe in some of you, you didn't want to come to church this morning, right? It's like some this morning's like that. Or if they're not like that, when you get up, they're like that after you've gotten the kids already and you just don't want to come. Now, what this is saying here is if we want to remain hopeful, if we want to be motivated, if we want to be encouraged in our lives, then the key is that you're hanging around other believers, that you're not forsaking the gathering of 
the saints. And you see a great practical example of that in Paul's life right here, right? He was discouraged. He's around other believers. All of a sudden, he's encouraged. And he's, he's thankful, right? So the, the, the answer to follow his example is that if you've lost hope, if you aren't feeling motivated, if you're feeling discouraged, the answer is to do what he did. Live for fellowship. Have fellowship with other believers. And the reason God works through this is because you, through your faith in Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have God's Spirit inside of you. And oftentimes, you don't even know you're doing this, but through you being around other people, God is working through you to encourage them, to bring to remembrance what his word says, to remind them of his promises when they need to hear it most, just like Paul needed to hear it here. Amen? And so there is no such thing as too much hanging out with other believers. Yes, we go out into the world and we minister to unbelievers, but we need to first and foremost be around each other so we're motivated, we're encouraged, we're, 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 we're hopeful, amen? And that's what we see here with Paul. He lived for fellowship for these reasons, he got this. And it goes on in verse 16 and it says, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So Paul, he finally makes it to Rome. Remember, if you've been going through Acts with us, back in Acts 19, that's the first time we see the Lord put a desire in his heart to go to Rome, right? And then in Acts 23, Jesus confirmed that is in fact from the Lord, you're gonna go to Rome. And then in Acts 27, the Lord reaffirmed, yes, I'm going to get you there. Why did he have to do all that? Because there was a whole lot of opposition on the way to Rome, right? But what we see here in him finally getting there is that none of that opposition was able to stop the will of the Lord from happening in his life. And that's one thing that you should definitely take from the book of Acts as we complete it today is that whatever Lord, the Lord has said is a promise to you in his word, even those specific things that he's put those desires in your heart and he's confirmed it and he's reaffirmed it, nothing can thwart that in your life. If God has said it, he will make sure it comes to pass. It doesn't matter how much opposition and adversity you face on the way, he will make it come to pass, amen? And that is what he does here. Now, Paul, he's not being kept in what would be considered a normal prison. He's basically on house arrest. He's allowed to live in his own private residence, though he's under the constant supervision of a guard who typically would be swapped out several times during the day, maybe in four-hour increments is what I was reading. But typically, those guards would be handcuffed to him too. So literally, at all times of the day, he had a captive audience, okay? They had to listen to what he said, okay? And in his writing to the letter of the Philippians while in Roman custody, while he's in this custody, he wrote to the book of, uh, the book of Philippians to the uh, church at Philippi. He says in Philippians 1.13, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. Basically, what he's saying there is that I've gotten to tell all of the guards about Jesus. I've gotten to share the good news with them, right? And then he goes on to say, some of them even got saved because in Philippians 4.22, he says, and all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. How did Caesar's household, how did they get saved? Because they were chained to him right? He got to tell the guards. Maybe the guards got to tell other people, but those people in his household, this is just a great example of one of the many things, many ways where the enemy means it for evil. Because remember what got him here, his false accusations against the religious leaders are what got him here in the first place, adversity. But what the enemy means for evil, God uses for good. 
Because what God used it for was to, for Paul to get the opportunity to share the gospel with people that might not have been able to hear it any other way. And they got saved as a result of it. Amen? That's pretty cool. He does that same thing in our lives. And it goes on to say in verse 17, and after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Paul always referring to his Jewish people, because he's a Jew, like his brothers. He wants them to know that, hey, I'm, I love you guys. I identify with you. I'm with you. He says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, or he wants them to know that, hey, despite what you've heard, I'm not guilty of violating any Jewish law, all right? Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they, or the Romans, had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, or basically they wished to free me. He goes on to say, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, which is what the Jewish religious were telling the Romans to do, kill him. And he's like, they couldn't find me guilty of anything. They wanted to let me go. But he goes on in verse 19 to say, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Or because they wouldn't drop it, I just decided to appeal to Caesar. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, Paul wanted to make sure that even though they gave these false accusations against me, that's never been, I'd never done that. I've never brought any accusations against you guys because I want you to know that I have nothing but good intentions with you. I don't want to accuse you of anything. I want you guys to be saved through hearing the truth about Jesus Christ. And it's a great example for us of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 9, of respond to evil with what? Amen. Don't respond to evil with evil, all right? He could have done that here, but he chooses not to. He's like, you know what? I'm just gonna respond to the kindness and I'm gonna trust God in this situation and God's gonna use it right here to save people because of that way, that way he responds, all right? So he goes on in verse 20 and he says, for this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Or basically he's telling them this, this hope of Israel, which is the Messiah, which is who they were waiting for in the Old Testament. He's saying, this is why I'm arrested because I told them that he's come. His name is Jesus. So Paul, he follows the same practice. We've seen him all through the book of Acts. He goes into a new city. Who does he talk to first? The Jews, right? Why does he do that? Well, he's a Jew, but also he understands that because he's educated, he used to be like a Pharisee, like somebody that knew the word of God, the Old Testament really well. So he's like, these guys know the word of God. It makes sense that I should start with them because the word of God talks about Jesus. It talks about all these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So these of all people should get this really quick and understand and have faith in Jesus, right? So that's why he starts there and he does the same thing here. And he calls this meeting with the Jewish religious leaders and they probably saw all these Christians kind of flocking around him and they're like, who's this dude? You know, let's, let's go and see what he has to say. So he proceeds to explain to them how he ended up in Rome. And it says in verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So the Jewish religious leaders in Rome had not received any communications from Jerusalem regarding Paul. Maybe they were on the ship that sunk and God's just like, nope, I'm squelching that because these aren't true. Maybe it's, it's just because uh, they kind of gave up because they tried several times to prosecute him with the Romans back in Jerusalem 
and in Caesarea, and none of it came, like, basically there was nothing to charge him with, so they just kind of, like, gave up on it. But these, these Jewish leaders had heard negative things about Christianity, despite them by their own admonition of not knowing anything about it. Basically, what they're saying is, like, we don't know anything about it, but we've heard bad things about it. You seem to know a lot about it. Maybe you can tell us about it. And I couldn't help but think, isn't that so, like, applicable to the culture we live in today? How many of you have run into people that have negative views of Christians but don't know anything about the word of God which defines what a Christian is? And rightfully so, right? They, they see it on TV and they think that it's truth or they hear somebody talk about it. And maybe even in some cases, they've been around so-called Christians that are doing horrible things, misrepresenting God, not doing what his word says, and that's their only experience with God. And they let that dictate who they think God is. But here's the thing. If they don't know God's word, they don't really know who God is, right? And I think it would surprise you how many people actually fall into that category. And what I'm gonna show you right now is a video that gives us a great demonstration of people, what, what it is is uh, the college ministry at a, a, a sister church of ours, Calvary Chapel Corvallis, they did this years ago where they just went through the campus and simply asked people with no other information, what's the gospel? And for the people to answer. And I think it shows you just like a misconception we can have sometimes, sometimes think in that everyone knows God's word and they've just chosen to reject it if they're not a believer. That's so far from the truth, all right? So go ahead and we're gonna watch some of this video and then uh, I'll keep going here in a sec. So it gets me emotional every time I watch that because if the word of God is what produces faith, because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, if the gospel is the power and the salvation, if the good news about Jesus is what we have to believe in to be saved, we need to hear to have the opportunity to believe. Are any of those people even having the opportunity to get saved? No. Because even those that had some experience or some exposure to Christianity or whatnot couldn't even put into words what the good news was, which kind of leads to my next point because Paul lived to share the good news of Jesus Christ through the word of God with people. He says in Romans 10, 14 through 15, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him, and how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. This is why you and me, Christian, are here on this earth still and not with Jesus, all right? From the moment you placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your purpose became to live for the Lord. That became your purpose in life where you'll find your contentment and your identity and your satisfaction. And it really consists of two things. The first being that God is going to change you to be more like Jesus because you can't change yourself. But through the different, as you walk with him, as you live for him, he's gonna change you through those processes to be more like Jesus until the point you're with him and you are like him. But then the second part of it is you are here to fulfill one mission. Never changes. 
And everything about following Jesus is encompassed in this mission, and that is to educate others about who God is and how they can know him through faith in his son. Utilizing the truth found in God's word. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus tells us, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. How do you become a disciple of Jesus? You hear the good news and you believe, right? So we're making disciples. We're telling them about Jesus. Then he goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism comes after you place your faith in Jesus. It's not what saves you. It's something you do to let everyone else know you're saved. And then he says in verse 20, teach them, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands. That's teach them God's word I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our mission. And as you share the truth of God through his word with people, what he does is, he says in John 8, uh, 32, the truth sets them free. As you share the truth of God's word about Jesus with him, he removes the blindness. He, he comes against the deceptions that the enemies led them to believe he breaks down those walls and he reveals himself to them and how much he loves them and how much they need him so that they can have a relationship with him just like you do. And Paul got this. That was his mission in life. You see it con- consistently reflected all through this book and in his epistles to share the good news of Jesus through the teaching of his word. Amen? He lived for fellowship with believers, he lived to share the word of God. Just as we're gonna see in these following verses, it says in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, this is basically to share Christianity, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So these are the religious leaders. And what it means there is they brought other people. They didn't just come, they brought other Jews, right? And it says from morning till evening, he expounded to them. That's what we do here. We go through the Bible verse by verse and we expound or we explain it. So that's what he's doing. He's explaining the word of God to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's the Old Testament. That's their Bible. That's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament at that point. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So the Jewish religious leaders, they're like, cool, he's gonna tell us about Christianity, set up a meeting, they invite everyone, all their friends to come in here. And Paul utilizes this open door given to him by God to expound or explain the word of God to them, specifically focusing on two things. First, the kingdom of God, which Jesus taught would come first spiritually as people heard the good news and believed and got saved. That's God's kingdom coming spiritually. And then it would come physically. When Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on this earth and rule and reign and set everything in order, set everything in order. And that's what we're waiting for, right? Because we see how bad things are getting and how they're gonna continue to get worse and they're only gonna be made right when Jesus comes and rules and reign. But that was an important distinction to make for them because the Jewish people were expecting, they were wanting because they were under the oppression of the Romans, Jesus to come and physically reign on this earth or the Messiah to come and physically reign on this earth. And when Jesus didn't do that, they rejected him. Now, having said that, they didn't understand that their spiritual salvation or being forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God was the way more important, way more important than physical salvation because ultimately it delivered them from death 
or the ultimate physical destruction that we need to be saved from first and foremost, right? So that we can be brought into eternal life with the Lord. They missed that. Now, the second thing Paul hits on is how the word of God in the Old Testament spoke of Jesus. And this is something that I learned in this church because I remember my pastor telling me, you know the whole Bible speaks of Jesus, right? And I'm like, what? I didn't get that. You mean all those boring texts in, in the Old Testament, like in Leviticus and stuff, that actually has meaning? And, and I went to the beginning and I started re-reading, re-reading it with that, that focus of like seeing Jesus in it. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, oh my gosh. And that's what Paul's doing here. He probably shared Genesis 22, where God asked Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah to be offered as a sacrifice unto the Lord. But upon getting there, the Lord himself provided a sacrifice, this being a picture of what the Lord would do through his son, Jesus, and providing him to be the sacrifice for our sins, which most scholars think happened on Mount Moriah. Maybe he shared with them the Passover celebration given in the law of Moses in Exodus 12, where the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish that was perfect and sacrificing it, painting its blood on the two doorposts and the lintel, making a cross in essence, something that saved the Lord's people from the judgment of death that he brought upon the Egyptians for the unrepentant sin, which was a foreshadow of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, whose blood would atone for the sins of all mankind through his death on the cross and save us from the judgment of death that our sins deserved. He might, have had, he might have referenced the prophets who God spoke specific prophecies to of who the Messiah would be, of the things he would do on this earth or like things about him that only God could have known that ended up being fulfilled by Jesus hundreds of years later, proving he was in fact the Messiah, like Micah 5 that spoke of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem or Daniel 5 that foretold the exact day of Jesus's triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem before he was crucified or Zechariah 11 that spoke of the Messiah being betrayed by his friend for 30 pieces of silver and that silver being spilled on the temple floor and, and being used to purchase a potter's field long before it ever happened. And the result of hearing the word of God being accurately taught and explained by Paul led to people believing in it, believing in Jesus, ultimately, in getting saved. Now, having said that, it also says that some people disbelieved. And it's important to understand the meaning of that word because what it does not mean is that what Paul said was unbelievable. What it means was they heard and understand what he explained to them, but they refused or chose to not believe in what they heard. It always being the choice of the listener when presented with the truth of God's word to either believe it or not believe it. There being no middle ground is when you hear the truth, it demands a response of either accepting it for what it is or rejecting or denying it. And just because you reject it doesn't mean it's not true. If I tell you what goes up must come down, you can either believe it or disbelieve it. There is no middle ground. It's either true or not true. But here's the thing, if you choose to disbelieve it, guess what, it's still true, it's still gonna happen, right? It's taking more faith to actually not believe the truth of God's word when you take the time to look at the evidence found within it in the world around us that actually verifies it, whether that's historically or scientifically. It goes on in verse 25 and it says, in disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement 
The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So the Jews who believed and those that didn't argued amongst themselves and Paul gives one last prophetic word from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, where God had warned his people ahead of time that when the Messiah comes, you guys are gonna have trouble believing in him. And to paraphrase basically what Isaiah is saying there, he's basically saying that if you reject Jesus, even though you hear the word of God, you're never gonna truly understand it. If you reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can think you see the difference between right and wrong in your life, but you're never truly gonna be able to understand what is good and bad. He's pointing out to him, here's the thing, your heart is hard, your ears are closed, and your eyes are shut to the truth because the reality is you really don't wanna turn from your sin and turn to God. Otherwise, you would see and believe in the truth that's being told to you. And these Jews that were choosing to not believe the good news about Jesus, being like those that, by and far, most of them would have been people that regularly studied and sought God. Like they studied his word and they went to or like uh, synagogues where they'd have church services, their church services, and they were seeking God. They were worshiping God, but they were missing the complete point of all of it. It was just religion to them. It was being good people. It was doing right things and not doing wrong things. And this is important for us to understand because this is something we can make the mistake of as Christians as well, if we're not careful. We can turn our relationship or what's supposed to be a relationship with God into religion where it all becomes about what we know and just trying to be good people and not be bad people and just getting a bunch of head knowledge and works, when that is the complete opposite of the intent of God saving you through faith in his son, Jesus. I like what Warren Wiersbe had to say regarding this. He says, we don't read the Bible to mark precious promises, although hundreds of them are there, nor do we read the Bible to understand Bible doctrine, although doctrine is essential. We read the Bible to get to know the heart and mind of God. The better we know God, the better we can enjoy him and minister for him. The point of God saving you is so that you can know him. And in knowing him, you will experience that he is the best thing you could ever, the best person you could ever know in your life. He's absolutely amazing. There's nothing that's not good about him. And as such, every part of his will for you is good, pleasing, and perfect. And as you get to know him through understanding him through his word and you come to know these things, guess what? As Paul says in Romans 12, you don't wanna stay the way you are anymore. You see how wretched you are. You don't wanna live for this world anymore. You wanna live for him because you see that everything in this world just leads you far away from him and into destruction and hurt and pain, discontentment, discouragement, and you see that everything he has for you leads to the absolute opposite. It leads to everything you've been looking for. And you do what Paul says, you don't wanna stay conformed to this world. You want God to renew your mind. You want him to change you. And that's the key. Because religion 
is trying to be good so that you can know God, which you can't do. Relationship is knowing God so that he can change you. And when you know God, you allow that, you seek that process to happen. You go to God. Paul lived to know God. He lived for that relationship with God. Even to the point in Philippians 3 where he tells you like, I've come to understand that it's in my suffering, I'm paraphrasing, but in my suffering is where I really experience the power of God. So I'm willing to suffer because that's what my life is. I just wanna know God. I wanna be close to him. And if that's where I see him, the greatest, or he's most, I'm most aware of him in the suffering, then so be it. Because my life's about knowing God. Amen? So it goes on in verse 28 and says, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now something we have to remember is that people's choice to not believe, because that can be really discouraging to us, especially people we really care about that we've been investing in. That in no way stops the word of God from continuing to go on and saving people, all right? Maybe even them at a little later time. Maybe you're planting words. Sometimes the enemy wants you to believe that. Your efforts are wasted. No, 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 no. And this is a great example because what he's telling them is like, well, fine. If you guys don't want to believe, God's just going to go on to the next person that will. And that is going to be the Gentiles, which praise the Lord for that because many of us are those Gentiles. God just moves on and he'll come back around and give you a chance, second, third, fourth, fifth chance. He's not going to give up on you. But nothing stops God's word. And that's something you should take away from the book of Acts too, from going out and saving people. Amen? It says in verse 28, or sorry, verse 29, which isn't in some of your translations, if you have an ESV, because it's not in all the original manuscripts, so they leave it out. It really just says, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. So it says the same thing as verse 25, that they were arguing amongst themselves, but as they go off, they continue to argue amongst themselves. Then it says in verse 30, and he lived there two whole years at his own expense or in his own rented place to live and welcome welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul, he spends two years in Rome, presumably waiting for his case to be heard by Caesar, which isn't recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. So we don't know exactly how that went down, but it is safe to assume that he was acquitted when he came before Caesar because based off his other epistles and other historical texts, it appears that he was free for another four or five years um, living for the Lord until he was eventually rearrested, imprisoned, condemned, and executed in Rome by Nero around AD 66 or 67 for his faithfulness to serve the Lord and not being the compromise that. And verse 30 tells us that he lived in his own rented place during these two years, most likely operating as we saw in Acts 18 in his trade of being a tent maker or a leather worker to support himself. But in no way through those two years did he ever lose sight of his purpose in life to live for the Lord. Because what does it tell us? Even though he still couldn't travel, he was very much on mission for Jesus because whoever came to him in all boldness with no hindrance, he didn't hold anything back. He shared the good news of Jesus. He taught them God's word. And it even went beyond the people that came to him because if you guys didn't know this, he, this is in this time of Roman custody is when he wrote letters to the Christians in Ephesus, which we know is the book of Ephesians. He wrote letters uh, to the Christians in Philippi, which we know is the book of Philippians. And he wrote a letter to the uh, church at 
Colossae, which we know is the book of Colossians. So he was faithful even to encourage and minister and disciple and teach the word of God to the other believers he had visited in his previous missionary journeys, even from there. Amen? Nothing about those two years in Rome being wasted by Paul because, again, he understood where his purpose in life was found. And that was living for the Lord. Whether he was in good circumstances or bad circumstances, that is what you continue to see him do all through his life. And so too with us, when we understand that that is our purpose in life as God's followers, we'll follow the same example as Paul that we see here. We'll live to tell others the good news. We'll live for fellowship with other believers. We'll live for that relationship with God which is often demonstrated through our prayer life, involving him in our life. All those things are what you see the early church, the foundation of the early church, what made it thrive, what it was founded on, what they kept on doing. And here's a beautiful thing about the book of Acts. It's complete in that the canon of scripture is completed. This is the inspired word of God. There's nothing beyond Acts 28. It gives us this beautiful picture of how God started his church and built it in the beginning. Amen? Here's how it's incomplete. God isn't done building his church. And here's the thing. You, me, we've been passed the torch from Paul and the other believers to continue that work God started here because he hasn't come back to get us yet. And that video I showed earlier shows you there's lots of work to be done. All right? We're the church. We're the result of these believers' faithfulness to do the simple things and God do miraculous things out of them. And God, everything that you see happen in this book, everything that you see happen in Paul's life, you have no reason to not expect the same thing in your own life if you're just faithful to live for the Lord. If that's the purpose of your life, and I want to just end as the worship team comes up here, going back to the mission statement for this church, the mission statement for the church, the foundation of everything we do. And I love this because I don't know if anyone else noticed this. I was sitting with my wife yesterday and she was debriefing me about the women's conference and, and just sharing the, the awesome things God did. And she was sharing about the different um, workshops you, you guys went through. One of them was on holy hospitality. And I'm like, oh, fellowship cool. Breaking bread together, having meals, taking communion together. That, that's awesome. One of them was on persistent prayer. Oh, prayer. Cool. The other one was on the word of God, right? And I couldn't help but think that I'm sitting there and I'm like, that's funny. Isn't that what Acts 2.42 says the early church was devoted to? Isn't that what, like we as a church has always been the foundation of everything we do we just want to follow that example. We want to be devoted to these things. And it's so ingrained in us that even in the lead, women leadership we have amongst the church, that's just naturally what they gravitate to. Of all the things we could talk about, we're going to talk about these things. Fellowship, the word of God, prayer. Same things Paul lived for. Lived for fellowship. Lived to share the word of God. Live for relationship with God. It says in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the word of God and the fellowship to the breaking of bread in the prayers or meals together with communion 
and prayer. Those four things, that's what the early church devoted themselves to. And I, I wanna just distinguish devotion because this doesn't mean they just did it when it was convenient. Their lives were dedicated to these things because they understood the importance. In essence, this is what allowed them to live for Jesus. This is, you, these are the things that you experience God that keep you close to him, that he tells us in his word. So this is how you devote, you wanna know how to devote yourself practically to Jesus? You devote yourself to these things. You devote yourself to his word because that's how you understand God. That's how you get to know him. That's how he speaks to you. You devote yourself to prayer because that's how you involve God in your life. That's how you show you rely on him. That's how you hear from him. You devote yourself to fellowship because of like we talked about earlier. That's where you're gonna be motivated. That's where you're gonna be encouraged. That's what allows God to work through you and blessing your brothers and sisters because you're critical to the body of Christ. And that's where he's gonna work through them to bless you. And here's what came of that. It says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to Jesus through the word, through prayer, through breaking of bread, through fellowship. And they were filled with this Holy Spirit or wonders and signs were being done. They were filled with the spirit. They were in tune with God. They were surrendered to God. He was able to do the work he wanted to do through them. They were together and they had all things or they were unified, no bickering. Sure, they had their differences. This was a crazy diverse, the early church, like a bunch of people were in, in Jerusalem for uh, the feast and, and they got saved from all different cultures. So crazy diversity, major differences, but they're unified in the mission. They're unified in Jesus. All those other things are secondary. There was no division because they're focused on the Lord. They're devoted to him. It says they distributed the, the proceeds or they, they sold all their belongings and possessions and distributed the proceeds all. There's generosity. They didn't have to be told to take care of each other or to give. It naturally came out of them. They trusted God. God provided all their needs and they just gave and helped as the Lord led them. And it says they were glad and had generous hearts. They were thankful. They weren't complaining. They weren't feeling sorry for themselves. Man, they just, when they were focused on Jesus, they were just thankful. And last but not least, because people saw this in them and saw that, wow, I, I wanna know what that, what is the matter with that person? Why are they like that? They had favor in people's eyes and they wanted to know why and they got to tell them about Jesus. And because of that, the last thing is they were fruitful. The Lord added to their number day by day. That was the church then, that's the church now, church. <laughs> we keep doing those same things. God's gonna keep doing those things in us. Personally and as a church family, and he is doing those things. But I was just so blessed to be reminded of keep the main thing the main thing. We don't evolve with culture or change. We do the same thing that the church always did. And as I often say, or my wife reminds me of this, the simple things are always the hardest things. Sometimes we want that deeper teaching or that deeper understanding. Really? Because I struggle to stay devoted to Jesus. That consumes all of my time. If I can just do that, then what this tells me is I'll do well like Paul. Amen? Amen. 
Well, we're gonna turn off the lights. We're gonna have a time to respond to Jesus. We're gonna sing some songs of praise. We're gonna have our prayer team around the room. And there could be a whole lot of things that the Lord might be ministering to you through that word. Maybe even now is a good time if you just wanna come before the Lord and go like, Lord, what does this mean for me? Like, because we don't, again, we don't read God's word. We don't hear God's word just to gain head knowledge. It's about allowing it to renew our minds so we can be conformed to the image of Christ. So we can be changed. So anytime I open the word of God, I wanna be like, Lord, what is it that you're trying to change in me? Like, what is it that I'm not understanding here? Or something sticks out to me like, oh man, I, yeah, I like that example in Paul's life. I need to be devoted to that thing. I need to be devoted to more fellowship because I am feeling unmotivated. I'm feeling discouraged. So what does that mean for me? How do I devote myself to fellowship with other believers? Oh, I'm, I, I'm not devoted to the word of God or I don't feel like I can share it because I don't know it well enough. Maybe I need to start reading it every day, even if it's only for five minutes. This relationship we have with God is a two-way thing. It's not just us talking to him. It's, it's talking to him for our benefit because he already knows, but so that he can respond to us and lead us into the things he has for us to give us the wisdom that we lack. So this is an opportunity to let God respond and ask him, what does this mean for me, Lord? What does this look, what can I take away from here and live out in my life with your help so that I'm more like you? I'm more of who you want me to be so I can experience all the cool things you have for me, amen? So don't miss out on this opportunity to let God do real work inside of you. If you would like prayer with your brothers and sisters because we're not called to bear hard things ourselves, come up and get prayer and we will pray with you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example you've given us in Paul. Thank you for the example you've given us in your church. Thank you, Lord, that your church is very much active and alive right now. You are working all the time, even when we don't see it. And we wanna be like Paul that, like, that never will, but with our purpose found in you, you've given us eternal purpose purpose that will result in rewards for all eternity and you've made it really simple Lord to just know you and follow as you lead and do the same things that we see these believers doing just devoting ourselves to your word devoting ourselves to being with other believers devoting ourselves to prayer involving you in our lives looking for you to lead and guide us so Lord as we go from here, we want to grow in these things. We want you to help us, reveal us the things that, that are somehow not reflective of where you want us to be. And then empower us by your spirit to live in those things, to operate so we can experience you and we can be used by you to do the same great things you do in the Christians here. So we can be surrendered to you fully so you can fill us with your spirit and we can be your witnesses as you said we would be in this world around us that you've sovereignly put us in to help those that don't know the good news of your word know what it actually says and means so they can believe in you and be saved as well, Lord. There are a whole lot of people in this community that don't have an understanding of the gospel and we're here to share it with them so they can have the same purpose that we have. Have your way and meet us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.